Welcome to the Alts Podcast. This is not another podcast about the stock market. Instead, we focus on the rapidly evolving world of alts. The goal of this podcast is to provide original research and insights that empowers you to become a better alternative investor. With each episode, we hope to bring you along with us as we learn together. Thanks for joining. Now let's dive in. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Hi, I'm Horatio Ruiz, host of the Alts Podcast. Today's guest is Ryan Stazinski, founder of Gemrate. Gemrate is a database tracking the trends from the biggest card grading company in the business, PSA. This is a big deal because in the past, PSA has been shrouded in mystery. And if there's one thing card collectors care as much about their collection, it's the condition of it. Ryan's database tells the story of an industry on the move. Today, he'll bring that data to life and we'll find out that for every number, there's a story to tell. Hope you enjoy. All right, we have Ryan here. We have the founder of Gemrate. Thank you for being here, Ryan. Yeah, thank you for having me. So when I stumbled upon your your, your site, I was just uh, blown away by how much data you had there. You know, you can kind of get lost lost in the numbers there, just like, you know, in terms of players, in terms of PSA data. For anybody maybe that doesn't isn't aware of, of Gemrate and kind of what you've created there, could you give us a quick, like, a little summary of, of everything you've been working on? Sure, yeah. So Gemrate right now, sort of the, the quick and dirty version of it, it's, it's the sort of hot reports on steroids. And right now it's focused on PSA data. There is, you can also do an access BGS data within it. But the sort of bulk of the work was oriented around PSA data. That's just where a lot of momentum was in the hobby. And so I spent the first few months of last year in 2021, just getting the data sort of structured correctly, making sure that it was being pulled in consistently how I expected. And then in May of last year, I started publishing some reports on the data. As PSA shut down, there was just a lot of talk about the backlog and what that what that could mean for the hobby. And so I saw an opportunity to just start to uh, put some information out there to shed some light on what had been, you know, what I was seeing through the data. Uh, and I did that for a couple months with sort of pretty much nobody noticing, but just continue to push it out there. And then in July of last year, it was picked up by Cardhorn, and that was sort of the uh, jumping off point for Gemrate. We picked up tons of followers on Instagram, started to get some email signups. And so from there, we've just been really continuing to push out content, but also the website itself is geared towards a few different use cases and really building that out. You know, so it's part content and content in general is sort of a, a free part of what we're doing. And then there's the the website, which is the app that we built to help people you know, make decisions as it relates to uh, improving their collection and or maximizing the value of their collection. Yeah, it's really unique because the content that you're creating, I guess, is is different, right? It's not the the box breaking. It's not the podcast. It's not the commentary. Your content is the data, and it, it really sheds light on on PSA. And I know you you mentioned BGS as well, but but PSA is almost like this monolith, right? And it's almost you know shrouded in secrecy to some extent. And you've you're kind of unveiling that, and 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 I think it's it's so interesting, you know, when you actually see the numbers. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been I've been excited to just bring some transparency to the space. Uh, you know, it's kind of ironic because PSA was a public company with Collectors Universe, but they were sort of notorious for not being that forthright with information and sort of just kind of doing their thing behind the scenes, even though they were public and to the frustration of some of the investors. And they've never really sort of 
historically had not provided a lot of sort of macro views as it relates to their data and just help people understand trends. They've done some of that. So sort of simultaneously as I was started to do uh, some of the reports for Gemrate, they were starting to become more transparent about you know, their processes and that's in part due to the change of ownership. And so there was clearly like a desire to start doing some of that. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that they're doing behind the scenes, obviously, from an operations standpoint. So content is a part of what they're doing, but they have a lot of other things that they're sort of focused on. And so I just saw an opportunity to, to bring some transparency to the hobby. And it's been exciting and really well received. I get a ton of notes from people just saying, like, love what you're doing and really appreciate that there's finally some, some voice speaking to just like overall trends and sort of just like what the lay of the land looks like, you know, helping sort of level set and provide context for you know, because everybody has such a strong opinion, great, you know, in the hobby in general, but for grading in particular, it just seems to be pretty polarizing. And so people are excited to have sort of data to support or, you know, challenge some of what had been historically thought to be, you know, some assumptions about the space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you're talking about the difference between a PSA 10 and a PSA 9, even for mid-level or lower level cards, I mean, you know, you're talking a, a chunk of money. So there's definitely, you know, when you're messing with people's wallets, right, uh, you're going to get some sort of uh, reaction there. Let's go back. I mean, because you mentioned that at the beginning of last year, you kind of started playing with the data and then, and then eventually you ended up publishing it. You know, what, what kind of drove you to start collecting the data to begin with? And, and what were you doing before uh, you were you know, working full time on, on Gemrate? Yeah, great questions. Uh, so at the beginning of 2020, I sort of decided I was going to take the year off. I, I sort of had set myself up where I could financially take a year away from full time work. I had been doing some consulting prior to that. I worked with a lot of early stage startups helping them build out their data infrastructure, collecting data, understanding their data, better communicating with their users. And I was working on a project actually related to finance, which is my sort of my background. I worked in banking for seven years before I moved into the startup world. And I, I tabled that idea when I saw that, you know, I, like so many, I saw in, this, in, the, in July of 2020, on July 19th, I think it was, I saw the, you know, the LeBron had sold for 1.8 million. And I just, I had already been seeing little, uh, snippets here and there about cards picking up. And I just said, you know what, I have to figure out what's happening here. Like I, care, I cared too much about cards when I was younger to sort of dismiss it. And I just started, I went full speed ahead into researching the hobby and, you know, consumed just hours and hours of content, whether that be, you know, some of the basic stuff you run into early on, which was like a lot of the Gary Fee stuff, a lot of the sports card investor stuff, which was really helpful uh, just to get like a baseline. And then you start to go much more in depth to try to navigate like all the nuance of the hobby. And I, I was pretty shocked to learn about the nuance. And, you know, grading wasn't a big thing when I was younger, I'm 40. And so, you know, I was collecting in the late 80s, early 90s, and grading wasn't really on the radar then. And so I was all about learning what to purchase. I purchased a lot of stuff quickly. And then, you know, the trick is you had to learn how to sell to sort of recoup a lot of what you spend. And I, I quickly learned that, you know, just the, the premium for a PSA 10 or anything gem mint. And so it was all about trying to figure out how to maximize my spend and maximize the return on that. And so I really started to dig into the pop report data, which I found super interesting. And you could just find like some inconsistencies there. You could find opportunities to, again, you know, there was the ratios that people were paying, the premium people were paying for things like gem mint PSA 10s was five, six times a raw card at that time. And so, you know, it's no surprise that, especially with basketball, the premium had sort of become pretty dramatic at that stage. And so I was just trying to figure out like, where do I want to create things to sort of maximize return? And I started to dig in these pop reports and I just realized how hard it was to navigate them. I was so frustrated. I was trying to copy stuff to Excel. It was hard to even, if you didn't know the exact details of the player, the set, the card number, 
you know, it was hard to find the information that you wanted. And so I just became so frustrated and I started thinking about a couple things. One, I thought, hey, PSA is a public company under Collectors Universe. It'd be really cool to track what they're doing. Because from an investment standpoint, I'm like, that could be pretty telling around how they're performing. And then from a card standpoint, I was like, this seems like a no-brainer to build something where, you know, I'm trying to compare 2018, 2019 Prism. I'm trying to compare parallels, trying to figure out where are their cards that might be great, you know, not great at such a high gem rate. Like there could be an opportunity to find PSA 10s that might be undervalued versus how the company is sort of perceiving them. And so I just was all in on this data and it was just so hard to come by. And so I just had thought about it for a couple months. I talked to a buddy in the industry, his name's Jeremy Levine, and he kind of pushed me and he said, you know, this sounds like a pretty pretty good spot for you. and something that you, you were very passionate about. He's like, you should go full speed ahead on it. And so come January of last year, uh, the first of the year, I just went all in on it. And so that's all I've been working on full time since. It's amazing. And so if I can say your background allowed you to kind of do that because in the, in the sense that you had, you know, a lot of um, training, you know, in data analysis and, and, and capturing numbers and being able to format it in a way maybe that people will understand. And and I get your frustration when you mean when you're doing like the pop reports, like when you're on the, the pop reports for PSA or, or BGS or even as, uh, SGC, you know, you're kind of like, what am I looking at exactly? What do these, all these things mean, right? The information is not straightforward, you know, if you don't really know what you're looking for. Right. And you don't even know, you know where to find some stuff. Yeah, they're not doing you any favors. You know, PSA at least had to revamp their site at the beginning of 2021, uh, which was nice, you know, but they're still pretty much, I mean, all these sites are still a work in progress, you know, even Gemrate is, but it was definitely frustrating and something I was excited to put into the marketplace. And, and you know, let me just add a, a note here for anybody that may, that's listening and, and isn't familiar with the card grading system. Um, it's really fascinating because there was a point in time, right, where you could take a one or two dollar card, and when we say a raw card, you know, it's it's not in a in this plastic slab that's been graded on a scale of one to ten. You could take these one or two dollar uh, cards, you send them out for uh, you know bulk grading for a couple of dollars, and then if you get that that gem, right, the gem mint ten, ten out of ten is the highest you can get. You know, you can sell this one or two dollar card. In some instances, I mean, I'm just going to put out numbers there, but for a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. And the difference between a PSA 10 and a PSA 9 was, you know, possibly anywhere in between that $100 for, for the PSA 10 to that $1 and $2 for that, that raw card. There was an explosion to where PSA had to stop taking submissions. They essentially shut down, which was kind of amazing. Could you talk about that? Like when PSA said, we're not taking any more submissions, that was kind of an underrated story. You know, what you're saying about the sort of the multipliers on taking a raw card and moving that to, you know, a at least a PSA 9 and you know, likely a PSA 10 in a lot of instances. You know, that was a, a market inefficiency that the hobby quickly learned and exploited. And so there was you know, this base, this, you know, this uh, era that we had where everybody was very focused on base, which was uncommon historically from what I understand. You know, I've been out of the hobby for a long time, but you know, people were pretty savvy enough to know, you, know you, don't, you don't really step into base cards. They don't hold long-term value. Uh, yet in you know, 2019, 2020, you saw the rise of base, and then you saw the rise of grading as people became really in tune with the idea that you can do that. You can buy a car cheap, you know, under 10 bucks and turn that into a quick hundred. And so, you know, the hobby, a lot of people gravitated towards that concept and PSA got flooded with submissions. And, you know, so I, I don't put any place, any major blame on them for doing what they had to do, but you know, they, they, they weren't prepared for any of this. And so I think that they were probably a little late to sort of recognizing what was happening. And unfortunately, I think there's people that are still suffering from kind of like their, just sort of like how they operated for a few months there when sort of everything was sort of moving too fast for how they for, for how well they had prepared. And so, you know, they wisely though shut down grading at the end of March 
and with an unknown backlog. And so that, again, I mentioned this about sort of how I got into content, but there was just a uh, enormous amount of uncertainty around the hobby, around when were cards coming back, what kind of cards were getting graded. And in the, in the midst of this, they were raising prices too. What, what happened though, to, to sort of what you were asking there is that the impact of the hobby was substantial in the sense that it kind of killed the wax game because you could no longer get cheap one to $2 cards uh, from, you know, opening a pack and flipping that and turning a profit. So, you know, but at the same time, wax prices have become so inflated by the idea of, you know, just people are paying high prices because of this grading phenomenon, taking base cards and moving them into the slabs and then selling them. So you had this phenomenon where grading was fueling a lot of the wax pricing, but then grading went away, the wax pricing hadn't calibrated yet. So you had that, and then you had a lot of people who had money tied up or cards and liquidity tied up in the grading world that they had no access to. And so the low end of the market in particular really seemed to bottom out there and the liquidity was pretty much crushed in the sense that people weren't getting cards back to sell. And when people were getting cards back, the market had already sort of corrected. So over the course of the summer, you started to see prices decline. You know, they were they were getting cards back at a loss to what they were paying to grade them as price and prices had gone up. And so you kind of had these few different factors that were basically fueling a large part of the, I want to say, you know, well, I would just call it a pretty substantial decline in the, in the hobby. And I think grading was a big part of that for sure. The, the shutdown of PSA, you also had Beckett follow suit. Uh, you had SGC still trying to figure out exactly like what they were, what role they were going to play. You had new grading companies enter the space. So it was a little bit of the wild west and candidly, a lot of people were in a bit of a holding period. I think um, our holding pattern in the sense that, you know, they just, they knew that they had cards that could be a value, but they didn't know what to do with them. We're still fighting that. Yeah, you're still finding people that, that submitted cards, you know, a year ago, and uh, they, they still really aren't sure when they're going to get them back. And I want to get into the data that you've accrued on gemrate.com. And to me, from the outside looking in, there's, there's two ways to look at it, right? From, from a macro view, right? You, you can look at a kind of PSA statistics and kind of what they've been up to on a, on a you know, you update your site every day. So you can kind of see how much they're grading on a day-to-day -day basis and view the industry from, from that lens, how they're going about you know, their, their business of grading, what's, how quickly are they turning these cards around? And then on, on the other end, you can kind of look at the cards themselves. Like what are the cards that are being graded? How many of them have been graded? Yep. And what is that percentage of the gem, right? The, the gem mint 10 that they're getting. So I'm interested in that. Do you find that people are more interested in, in, in their cards and, and how many times they've been graded and, and the statistics behind that? Or are they more interested in, in the information you're providing in terms of PSA? It's a great question. And I think one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to not force people to come to the site to find value. So my the following for Gemery was pretty quick on Instagram because I think people really like the information about just what's happening, the macro stuff as it relates to PSA, getting a view into sort of how they're trending, you know, within that, what categories are doing and how they're looking and, and what's trending within that. And then I also publish, you know, so I publish just overall trends, how many cards are being graded, what that pace sort of would look like over the course of a year, how that would translate from a volume standpoint. I look at the different categories, what's been the most graded. I look at the different players, which is a very unique view. Like that's never really been shared in the hobby. It's sort of just like, if you if you look at all cards graded, how does that shake out from a player standpoint? I look at the different sets, I look at the different cards. Anyways, people get a window from that. I try to deliver that into where people are already consuming content. So I deliver a lot of that into Instagram, Twitter as well. I'm starting to have, find a, a bigger following there. So I'd say some of it gets consumed outside of the website I built, which is totally fine. That's kind of the vision I had. 
And then when people have more specific questions or quickly trying to find context, so I would say like Gemrate's role, the site itself, most people come to the site because they want quick context or sort of error in discovery mode as it relates to a player or a set or a card. And so they'll come there and they'll say, hey, I want to learn about Zion or I want to learn about Chris Middleton, for example. And you can kind of go both ends of the spectrum there, you know. And Gemrate will tell you how many cards have been graded. You can dig in to see, you know, how that's trending over time. You can you can figure out sort of for me, for example, with the Chris Middleton one, that's more interesting for me because I'm like I have was out of the hobby at that time. I can quickly learn, you know, which cards did he have at the time, what are his rookie cards, what are the ones that sort of have some traction from a grading standpoint, has momentum changed at all. So one of the things that we did with Gemrate early on, a decision I made that I think is pretty important to how I sort of want this uh, business to continue over the long run, which is we collect this data every day. So we have very granular data around what is that population trend look like? And are you seeing acceleration in it? Are you seeing things slow down? Has things maybe peaked? So it's just quick context is the short answer. And that's how a lot of people come to the site. So the macro stuff, a lot of people consume on social. People do come to the site for that too and they subscribe to our email. But for the site, it's usually when people have a little bit of an opinion but don't really know what to do yet. They just have a hunch that something could be interesting. And so Gemrate usually is like the launching off point or the jumping off point. And um, then they'll go to the card ladders and the, the, you know, the market movers or they'll go straight to eBay. But we're pr- pretty early in the discovery phase. As you're talking, and, and I'm, I'm listening to the development, and let me just, for first off, are you a one-man team? Um, how do you get all this data in there, and, and you know how many moving parts are there to the business? Yeah, so it's a one-person team right now in that I'm the only employee. I do have resources that I can tap into when I need to for data tasks and things like that. And then I have a design agency called Working Assembly that I work with uh, very closely. And for the most part, though, I, I sort of intentionally have made this project that I wanted to take on. It's a full-time project, so it's not, you know, project might be underselling it a bit. It's full-time focus for me. And a lot of it was data collection, so it's just building and writing code to collect this data programmatically in a reliable manner, reliable fashion. Then it was moving towards designing an experience on site, which I'm still improving. There's still a ton of work to do there to remove friction. And then there's a lot of the content. The content stuff is candidly the thing I'd like to sort of farm out sooner than later in the sense that there's nothing really unique about my view of the world and how I'm sort of analyzing this data, but yet I'm still doing it, and I've been doing it now since the start, and I need to start handing stuff like that off. But yes, it's been me, but it's in 2022, that's no longer gonna be the case in the sense that I need to start sort of scaling what I'm doing from a product standpoint and, and sort of outsourcing some of the other work. You know, what you just said, and I was gonna say this too, was you know, listening to you speak, I feel like there's definitely an innovation there, right? We were talking earlier about uh, the space and the amount of money that's coming into the, the card industry, still relatively small, but like, you know, we talk about dibs and they're, you know, fractionalizing uh, shares, but then putting that on the blockchain, right? And they're being invested in by, by Amazon. You have this huge change with fanatics, you know, uh, basically taking over the entire card industry. When I look at, at your site, though, I mean, I, I definitely see the innovation there, man. I see like that, that there's a service. You've been able to streamline some of this data and in a way that's digestible, but at the same time, like it's not just a few numbers, right? Like there's so much data there, but it's easy to kind of to, to get. What I mean by that is, and just one of the features in your, of your site, you know, like I have a, an Ichiro Suzuki personal collection, right? So I'm just kind of going in there and wondering how many Ichiro cards are there? And man, I was, I was blown away to find out that there's, you know, thousands of cards. I don't know what the, the number is now, but I was like, wow, I didn't realize there were that many Ichiro cards. You mentioned that, you know, what you feel like it's not unique, right? But I don't think there's too many sites that are able to get that data from PSA and kind of put it in a way that that's easily accessible, I guess is the best way I could put it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think 
we, we definitely want to stand for accessibility. So bringing data to the market that's hard to come by or doesn't exist and that sort of, you know, and ultimately like the vision for what we're doing is to, you know, facilitate storytelling. You know, this is a hobby that, you know, people like to throw around the word valuation in sort of more traditional markets uh, like stocks, for example. And that's a little bit of a, a gray area as you start to step into sports cards. And so I think a bit more storytelling and the more that we can put data in front of people to support their theses and make them feel good about where they're investing their time, energy, either that could be for just building a great collection or, or for, for actual investment purposes. You know, so we think about it, you know, right now we're focused on the supply side because that's the data that was available. That was sort of where there was the most pressing need in the sense that people just didn't have great visibility. And, you know, we'd like to venture into other parts as well, but we're taking our time. You know, this is a, this is a bootstrap company that I want to be really thoughtful about how, what are the needs that the audience has. So, you know, that, what, where does the hobby sort of need generate to focus its attention? And I don't want to be distracted by, you know, outside voices and sort of certain timelines to dictate that. So I've been really mindful of that as I've approached sort of just like how to fund this and sort of how to make this a sustainable business. And so it's moving a little bit slower in the sense that there's a ton that I want to do, but I think we're being really thoughtful and I want to make sure this data is trusted. And I feel like we've done a lot of that. So that was that was sort of like the baseline or the foundation that we wanted to put in place in 2021. But you know, the reality is we're using data that exists and we're just making it easier to use. And I'd like to continue to build on that. In terms of you building the site and building the company, you took the year off last year. You were in a position to do that. Um, have you been able to, to monetize the site? Have you been able to kind of, I don't know if you're thinking about putting ads on there. I don't know. Have you been able to, to kind of see some returns? So the short answer is I have not monetized it yet other than I have an API client uh, right now, which is, which is a lucrative business, but it's just one client and they're on a pretty good deal right now in the sense that, you know, they're, they're basically helping to test vet the data and make sure that it, it looks consistent and as they would expect to build out what they're doing. Um, so there's there's a little bit of a B2B side of this equation. When you say API client, what it, it's a, it's another service that is using the population data within their tool. So if you think of the you know the card ladders of the world and stuff like that, this, that's not who's the client there. But if you think about them and sort of all these other tools that are collecting population data or don't have it, right? They would want that in their experience. It's just been so hard to come by. One of the angles or sort of ways that we can monetize this business is to provide that data to them. That's a little bit of like a short-term vision though, because the reality is, you know, we're sort of doing what PSA should eventually be doing as well. And, you know, Beckett and SGC and all these guys, they should really be making this data publicly available. And they're, they're just far from doing that yet, but that will really help them establish an ecosystem around, you know, their, their role in the hobby. And so I'm not counting on that as being a long-term revenue stream. So where I was going with that is there's this, you know, the SaaS product that I think about, which is, you know, some, some, some element of freemium and meaning, you know, we'll have a free tier that you should get hopefully a lot of value from. And then for the people that are, you know, sort of the, the, you know, the data nerds like myself that want to really, you know, dive deep, then we'll have some sort of plan that we'll chart. But the idea is not to make this some sort of, you know, very expensive tool that is cost prohibitive and we want to make it generally available to people that want it. And so trying to be mindful of that. Fully considering that I don't think this hobby and the amount of people that will pay for tooling is as big as people think. So, you know, on your, on your point earlier around the amount of funding that's coming to the space, I still think it's a pretty frugal hobby. I think, you know, hobby being an important word there is that, you know, most of the discretionary income goes towards the cards themselves, the transactions. And so tooling is still something of a newer phenomenon here. And so I'm not pulling myself into believing this is some hundreds of thousands of user type of opportunity. So I'm trying to be thoughtful about that. And that's candidly why I didn't want to monetize yet is that I wanted to one window sort of what this data looks like and what it could look like and where people can find value in it. And two, I need to understand sort of like 
how much did people value this data and what were they doing with it? And so, you know, there's a subscription model that will eventually be put in place. I think, you know, you mentioned ads. I don't think we'll do ads, but we will probably do like affiliates, right? Because this is, I mentioned, this is like earlier in the discovery process. And so, you know, people, I never envision a world where people are transacting on Gemrate, but we can help take you to marketplaces. We can help take you to tooling. And so there's, those are sort of the primary three that I think of initially. So the API, B2B, the SaaS app, which will be B2C, and then also some affiliate relationships as well are sort of the primary vehicles. And then there may be some sponsorship and stuff like within that, but that's more oriented around the content. That's not a focus of mine right now. I hear what you're saying about all these different revenue streams that you can have potentially, but then what do you think, do you ever think about like um, the data, right? Card Ladder basically was, was doing what you're doing. They're pulling data, but just for sales, right? And then they get uh, they get acquired by Collectors Universe. We don't know for how much, you know, but you can assume that it was a pretty penny. Do you ever stop and think about that? Totally. I mean, I, I like to think about just where this tool needs to fit and sort of the, you know, the big picture of the hobby. And I was excited to see what happened there because it sort of gives me a view into sort of how people are going to perceive something like that. You know, is it good for the hobby? Is that present challenges, conflicts of interest? And, you know, you see a little bit of both. Some people are excited and rightfully so that Card Ladder will be able to scale, you know, what's still a pretty, you know, or a fairly small database to a much larger one, much quicker than they would have had they stayed independent. You know, on the flip side of that, it's just, you know, they're going to have a stronger opinion about PSA and sort of the way they present data and how they think about what they're doing and how they want that to sort of integrate and play into their future plans. So, uh, you know, you see some skepticism there. For, for me, as it relates to Gemrate, so by, I didn't really touch on this earlier, but it's kind of the, the view of the world here is that I think total pop is missing. That's kind of what I'm referencing. It's just like combined population is sort of the actual view of supply, right? And it's narrowly been viewed through the lens of grading companies because that's just the way the data was presented. It's also favorable for sellers to keep things as narrow as possible because it makes supply look limited, right? But the reality is there's actually much more in play. And so this concept of total pop is something that I want Gemrate to own, which is what does it look like when you actually factor all the grading companies or the, you know, the, the most prolific ones at least. And uh, just to close that point is, I don't know if that's something that should be within another company or should be independent. And I, you know, I think it's important when I think about this business, I'm building it to be sustainable and independent. First and foremost, if something were to happen down the line that makes sense, you know, I'm sure I'll at least be willing to have conversations to understand what that could look like. But the goal here is to build something that is sustainable from start. I see what you're saying about the total pop. And uh, I kind of want to get your opinion here. Like, in, in some ways, though, the pops are separate, right? Because in, in the sense of this, and this is just kind of like an opinion, you take the, the difference between a PSA 10 card for any given card just about and then an SGC 10 or a BGS 10 and the, um, you know, the, the, the price discrepancy, right? The value, the discrepancy in value there is astounding for whatever reason, for whatever reason. And so it's almost like um, the total population is important. You got to know how many of these 10s are out there. How many nines are there between the, all the different, you know, grading services, but there's already the segregation based on grading company because of the value that each is perceived to have. What are your opinions on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I think that I would never strip out that context. So if we were to present total pop, you'd still be able to drill down and see, you know, what does that look like across the landscape? But, you know, for example, I'm collecting a set that's the 2014 Excalibur Kaboom set, and it's only basketball. And at that time, BGS was the leader in the marketplace, right? But, you know, through the lens of Kabooms today, you know, everything you hear about and think about is PSA, because that's sort of when the hype picked up. And, you know, it's been over the last 18 months that Kabooms have been all the rage. And so, you know, if you were to look at it through the lens of PSA, you'd think the population was much smaller than it is. You know, it's only 170-something PSA that have been graded over the seven, eight years that set's been out. But when you look at BGS, the number is closer to like 500. And so if you were just looking at it, people, and, and the other thing is PSA grades that set 
significantly harder than BGS does. And so, you know, if you're looking at gems for that set, you think it's through the lens of PSA, you think there's only 33 cards across a 50 card set that have ever been PSA 10 over the life of that set. But then you factor in what's happening with the BGS side of the world, and there's been, you know, a couple hundred that have gemmed, and the total population is over 500 across the 50 cards. So anyways, if you don't have that context and you just go and you look at the, through the lens of PSA, which is what a lot of people try to do, they present that set as being more rare than it is, you know, it could be pretty misleading and you can make, you know, incorrect decisions about the market. So my idea is not to strip away sort of the nuance. It's just to provide a holistic view so you can actually, you know, understand the nuance of, hey, the market was in a different place five years ago. BGS was actually the leader and you would pay more for BGS. You would go out of your way to grade with BGS and that shifted. And so those things play out over time in how we're, we're sort of supply sits and sort of how the population shake out. But you, you know, you can't, you, you need a tool to be able to present that. It'd be hard to sort of, if you were coming in without that context, it'd be hard to navigate. That's a great point, especially, you know, when you have certain companies marketing it a certain way, right? Like you mentioned, they stated, you know, there's only seven PSA 10s in existence, but it's like, wait, well, you know, there's other grading companies, right? And so it's not, it's not that PSA 10, that gem mint seven pop is not a hundred percent accurate in terms of what's out there. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's just for the benefit of the seller most time. I don't think it's incorrect, right? I just think it's, it's not necessarily painting the full picture and I don't see any reason to not at least have the data available to help people understand the broader context. Absolutely. Let's talk about PSA. A couple of days ago, uh, you know, you and I, I think we listened to the same podcast. Um, Kevin Lenane, the PSA president, said that there's a, a backlog of 6.7 million cards. And your site does a great job of kind of putting out there, like, how many cards are being graded each day by PSA. Some of the stuff that you can glean off of that is, is pretty, pretty amazing. Where's PSA at right now in terms of grading cards per day? And based off of the backlog, by when would that be done? Yeah, uh, good questions. And I love that, you know, the transparency that this new team has brought, you know, Nat is very vocal and very transparent, which I very much appreciate. And Kevin seems to follow suit there, which is awesome. Um, so I appreciate that, you know, they're trying to communicate as much as they can without sort of you know, showing their cards to agree that would be sort of irresponsible or sort of just venturing into the unknown. But, you know, that's 6.7 million is a good number. That's the first time that they've sort of quoted the backlog on the record. And it was a little bit under the radar, and it was fun that we both caught that. But, you know, you didn't see too much press about it because it was just on a, a podcast. And it was sort of just tucked in there and wasn't necessarily the headline. And so that 6.7 million number is interesting and it's important. You know, it's not totally clear if that's the true backlog in the sense of I, I, I personally believe that PSA is going to always carry some backlog just to give themselves a little bit of a buffer. And so I think that's 6.7 million. I don't know if that's actually like the total addressable backlog that they feel is that they just have to ship out to be caught up. Or if that's sort of the, what I will call like the addressable backlog, which is like, hey, we actually have an 8 million backlog and we want to get 6.7 out to sort of, you know, be to a place that we think is the new normal and sort of have a little bit of a buffer there. But anyways, that 6.7 is what they came to or went public with, which I think is super interesting. And basically, PSA has said they're devoting 80% of future capacity towards that backlog. And if you run the math, they also said in that interview that, you know, they'd like to be caught up on the backlog by the fall. And so you put that at eight or nine months. You can back into the math of 80% of the volume goes towards that. Just to quickly touch on one thing you mentioned, they've been doing about 700 to 800,000 cards a month, which is about double the output that they had done in 2020. So they basically doubled output in 2021 and they're doing 700 to 800,000. 
to clear out that backlog, though, they'd have to basically average something around 900,000 to a million cards a month. And they're not there yet. They're only doing about you know 800,000. So it factors that they're going to ramp capacity pretty meaningfully over the course of the next few months here to sort of hit that average of a million a month, let's call it, to sort of clear out that backlog. And so it's pretty telling, though, that they're, you know, they're, they're it's no surprise, but it's cool that they are sharing that information and giving some visibility around it. And it's, it'll be exciting to see sort of how they ramp capacity because, you know, they this ultimately comes down to the number of bodies they have to grade cards. People think that PSA has a lot more graders than they do. And it's, it's, a, it's a very real challenge for them to sort of scale those operations. And, you know, you can open centers all across the country, but the reality is you need training and you need to, to vet and you need experts. And so that's a process, it's a slow process. And so, you know, they don't have a team of more than maybe, let's call it around, you know, give or take 10, but 100 graders that are putting out this crazy volume. And so they are, you know, it may, it may be 110, 120, but it's not a huge team. It's not 400 people. And so, you know, ultimately it comes down to them finding bodies that are consistent graders. And, you know, to hit that million number is going to be very interesting because they're clearly not there yet. A million cards a month. I just marvel at the number and I kind of wonder, there's so many people sending them their cards. How do you store all those cards? I mean, just the thing I get is I get this picture of this massive warehouse and people just kind of working nonstop. Do you have any like any numbers on on the actual number of graders? Because then, you know, I'd be interested in seeing how many cards are being graded per person. You know, how many cards are being graded per person per day, right? Because that that has uh, that a spillover effect. Like, how well can somebody grade a card? You know, if if they're turning them over every minute or two, right? It's a good question. I don't know definitively, but there's anecdotes that you can sort of piece together where they're at and it's, you know, so at the, they're previously a public company and in their uh, annual filings, they would put in the number of graders they had. And I think at the end of, you know, the middle of basically 2020, they had 30 graders, 30, 30 or 34 graders, something around there. And then you can hear through some of the transcripts and some of the conversations that SNAD has had that they basically have like 3X to 4X that grading team. And so, you know, you can reasonably assume that they're somewhere between like 100 and 125 graders. And then when you start to run the math, it's almost basically like a card a minute, which is not a, a lot of time, obviously. And so you rightfully heard a lot of people in the hobby sort of questioning quality. PSA was in a spot where it couldn't win. It had this backlog and everybody wanted to clear it. But yet at the same time, people were saying, you know, quality was a concern and consistency is a concern. And rightfully so, people are asking those questions. And I do think, you know, you saw some of that over the summer where gem rates dropped pretty meaningfully. And I think people were attributing that to PSA, potentially controlling population and you know, trying to have a little bit of a stronger opinion on sort of what the market should look like. And I think the reality was it was just a bunch of new graders that were being onboarded that were playing it safe or sort of rounding down. And, you know, there's a few reasons for that, but I think it's, I think that impacted the market much more than people realized. And I think we've seen that sort of recalibrate over the last few months where gem rates are probably much more, much closer to where they historically have been. The challenge with that is, I think people always want to argue about which grading company is tougher. And I, I would just say, I don't think that actually matters. I think what matters is that grading companies are consistent. And so, you know, so you know what you're walking into. And so, you know, you run into this problem where people submitted cards at any given point of 2021 or 2020. And, you know, you're sitting in this year window where your cards are returned to you. You might have fallen in that short window where gem rates were down and you're kind of just screwed because that's when your cards got graded. And it really had nothing to do with you. It's just the period of time that you ran into PSA sort of calibrating things. And so anyways, those dynamics have to sort of improve because I think that's really problematic. And I think they're very focused on that, but it was very interesting to see. So anyways, that's, it's been, it's been very interesting to see sort of what they've been doing internally. And, you know, again, they're very vocal about hiring graders because that is really the key 
point of leverage to scaling their operations. Gotcha. Do you have a line of communication with PSA in any shape or form, like in the way that you gather your data? Have they reached out to you, you reach out to them, or, or are you just kind of collecting this information independently? Uh, I know the team there. You know, I've talked to them a little bit and sort of brainstorm or workshop just like um, getting the data, how I ideally would like to get the data from them. You know, it's in their it's in their best interest to sort of again make this data more publicly available. And so I, I know some of the team there, we don't talk frequently, and sometimes they'll sort of shoot me a note and just say, Hey, you know, we like what you're doing. They're okay with what I'm doing, but they also have things that they want me to keep an eye on or, or sort of, you know, for example, one thing that I have to be cautious about is and I'm usually okay talking about it, but this is how many cards PSA has graded. And the reality is it's actually the, the amount of cards that have showed up in the pop report. And there's nuance to that. I use graded as sort of shorthand for this is how many cards have showed up on the pop report. And that generally translates to how many cards have been graded, but there's nuance within that. There's reholders, there's other sort of things to consider there. And so we'll talk about some of that stuff every now and again, especially for like high value cards uh, that they want to make sure the information is being uh, accurately portrayed to the hobby. So it's a very infrequent line of communication, but I do know the team. Yeah, I, I know, you know, that, that, that relationship, right? You have to sort of be partners, but you also kind of want to keep that a little bit of distance, right? Because what you're doing, what you're working on is, is an independent business that, uh, that, you know, people need to see that you're not kind of uh, affiliated with them necessarily or tied to them and that there's no sort of compromise there. I mean, I don't know if that's correct. No, that's 100% correct. The fact that I even have a line of communication doesn't impact anything I've ever put out. It just helps me understand, okay, when, you know, it's important to make sure certain times that I'm speaking to items that have showed up on the pop report as opposed to sort of just broadly saying things are graded because, you know, it just might lead to a lot of path that's unproductive. And so it's a good checks and balance in the sense of making sure that I focus on this is related, this is data that's coming from the pop reports as to speaking specifically to what's been graded because I actually don't know that level of detail. You know, PSA doesn't share any information with me as it relates to what's going on behind the scenes. And so everything that we do is inferred from the pop reports. And so there's a little bit, you know, they've even come out and put out their own data now, which is great. I'm glad that they are actually coming out and doing their own monthly reporting and sort of they just started this last month saying like, here's the summary of the month. You know, they're doing it much slower than Gemrate is, and it's, it's, but it's generally the same idea. We're just going to be publishing this on a daily basis and getting really granular into the trends and nuanced into the sort of that view of the world. And they're going to stay much more big picture, but I'm glad that they're also coming out there and sort of validating some of the work we've been doing. And, you know, ultimately there's a little bit of discrepancy because they're talking about the items that have been graded and I'm talking about the items that have showed up in the pop report, but it's big picture. It's the same concept, same themes. You know, we talked about the PSA view and then you can get into the, like the nitty gritty, right? Like the cards themselves. And so you have a list of the top 100 graded cards of all time, the 500 graded cards, and you go all the way down to a thousand. And that list is just so, so fun. I could spend hours on that list just with the first 100 alone. And you really get a kind of a feel, just looking at the top 10, right? You really get a feel for the impact of the, of the amount of people that were sending their their cards in that mania, right? Where they were getting those base, that base Zion Williamson, uh, John Morant, right? And those cards are in the top, correct me, I think Zion is like number four or something like that, all-time graded card, the base card, the, the base Panini, which is a, amazing to me. And it kind of speaks to, I know it's a common term now, the, the, the junk slab era where any card is, is slab now. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it was from the dollar pile at the card store or whatever, or this, you know, your, your million dollar card or whatever, but it's just like they're, the, the proliferation, right? The output of slabs is, is everywhere, you know? Whereas, you know, when I first started collecting cards, I was only going to send out stuff that was, I thought was very valuable, you know? And then, but like you said, there was that inefficiency. And now it's fascinating to see how that's caught up and I don't know if you could talk about that. Like, I, I know that, that your site's not set up for necessarily, you know, in terms of looking at prices, but there's been consequences from, from that, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty staggering too when you look at that data. I was excited to put that into the market because it was sort of tracked by hand by a few people and it was pretty hard to do. And so now you can programmatically see that for PSA, you can see that for BGS, we'll have SGC up there soon. And you know what you see when you quickly look at that though is like two pretty distinct eras that were fueled with enthusiasm. And you know then you see this sort of these large gaps in that. And you see you know the late '80s, you see the Griffies of the world, you see some of the cards from the early '90s some of the Jordans and things like that. Um, and then you see this big gap until, you know, the late 2018, 2019, when that activity really spiked again. And so you have these two, you know, you have the junk wax, the junk slab area that shows very quickly in that data, which is, it's, again, it's staggering to see something like the 1989 upper deck, Ken Griffey Jr. has been graded 86,000 times. It's just like, that's graded, right? And it just shows you, you can only imagine how many of those cards were printed over that, that period of time. And that's just one grading company and all these other things to consider. And then you have the Zion on the other side of that, which is the most gemmed card of all time, the most PSA 10s out there, which just crossed 20,000, which was like a, you know, kind of like a funny milestone in the hobby. It's not one that you really want to celebrate, but it was it certainly talked a lot of, about in the sense that it was representative of sort of like the times that we're in. And you've seen the hobby sort of factor that. It was, there was sort of this premium for liquidity that existed in 2020 and into 2021, which is, you know, we want to have cards that you can move quickly and people paid a premium for that. I would say that that was one of the things that people weren't really factoring, which is like cards that you could move quick, you pay a little bit more for because you knew you could get rid of them and you, they were basically as good as cash. And so you saw base cards sort of really becoming where people were focusing their attention because they knew they could move them and they, could, they knew they could move them in large volume. What wasn't really fully understood was how large that volume was and sort of like what the trajectory for that volume was going to look like. And you started to see some of these pop reports really get to some some of these large numbers people started to step back and say like, okay, what are we really doing here? And you, you've seen sort of these prices follow suit in the sense of, you know, now that the supply has, it's just clear that the supply far outweighs the demand under almost any scenario. And people are very savvy to not think about like, who, where do these cards go when, you know, people aren't asking for them? Like who holds the bag is always what you're hearing. And so prices reflect that now of the fact that there's not a lot of people ultimately that want to hold on to, you know, 20,000 base science, even though this market might be large, not only is it base prism, there's all the parallels, there's all the different sets. And so there's not a market for a lot of these base cards that have high populations and the prices have cratered as a result of that. Yeah, I think I think that the most telling one for me was Rui Achimura. You know, he's in the top 100 of all time uh, graded cards. And, you know, this is not to take a shot at him. I mean, he's he was a great college player, Gonzaga. He, you know, he's you know had a decent pro career. But it's like when you consider all the cards that are out there, right, that you could possibly grade in, and Rui Hachimura is in the top 100, that just kind of gave me a little chuckle. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, it's wild. I mean, you look at that, you have Gavin Luxes of the world and things like that that are very high on these lists. And it just shows you sort of like how speculative this market is, how much attention goes towards the prospects, how much of a sort of you want, you know, just the role that grading played. You mentioned this early in the podcast, but, you know, grading was, you know, fractions of the price it was, is now, you know, two years ago. You know, it was 10 to $20 a card, maybe, to grade it. And now we're talking about 100 just to get in the door at PSA. And so, you know, you have people throwing these cards out there, just seeing what would what would hit a gem, and then flipping them pretty confidently. And so, yeah, the market, the data certainly reflects that phenomenon. It's almost certain we'll never see that again. Yeah, if you're a card nerd, or even if you're just a stats nerd, right? The site is just full of wonders. I guess you know, and and just the 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 amount of stuff that's there, like that Nolan Ryan rookie card with uh, Jerry Kuzman. It's in the top 100, but it's only got one. There's only I didn't realize, you know, there's only one gem mint, which is also pretty awesome. Yeah, that's a that's a grail card for me for sure. One hundred percent grail card, and also just the fact that Ken Griffey is the number one and two, you know, has the number one and two graded cards of all time, and he's got four cards in the top ten, and so uh, just kind of 
to me puts in perspective like the kind of impact that Griffey had, right? I mean, he was, you know, the backwards cap. I remember kids imitating him you know, when we were playing in the Sandlot. And we kind of forget that, right? Like Ken Griffey is kind of like an afterthought now. But the numbers like that kind of give you an idea of the impact that the athlete had um, at the time. Because cards kind of reflect that, right? Cards reflect the, in, in a lot of ways, they reflect the status of certain athletes at a certain point in time. Totally. I mean, he's, you know, he's in that rarefied era of being iconic. And I think, um, I, I think it's, that's what the hobby's always trying to like wrap its head around and like, what qualifies and how do you get there? And it's a, it's a small set, but yeah, I mean, it's just funny. Then you do, you see the King Griffey and then yeah, not far below that Rui is there. And, uh, you know, it's just sometimes hard to grasp what exactly happened. I'm sure people will look at this 20 years from now and be like, what, what was going on? What could they possibly have been thinking? And, and, and it's crazy times, but you know, it's times like this that makes it so interesting to be in this space. What trends do you see? And if I can, if I can point one out right now, please add on to any other trends that you spot. I saw that by a pretty good amount. Soccer is the fourth most uh, graded category, right? And then the NHL is fifth. And I don't know if that speaks to the the lack of popularity with with hockey cards, or if that speaks to the spike in popularity with with soccer and with the World Cup coming up and everything in the summer. I don't know if there's any other trends that you could add on to that. Yeah, no, I think it's twofold. I think that the soccer one's an important one, and I think you'll see a lot more attention paid to that this year with the World Cup. And I think it's partially just production. You know, the manufacturers paid a lot more attention to it. They produced a lot more product, and there was demand for it. And then, you know, a lot of the same phenomenons that we're, we were seeing with basketball in particular, where basketball sort of had the, the largest multipliers for graded cards, you saw a lot of that with soccer, too. And to the flip side of that, like, you didn't see that with, like, baseball. You didn't see that with hockey. Like, those multipliers kind of helped. So what I mean by that is, you know, you would see a raw card to PSA 10 multiplier be, like, 5x in basketball. But that never really left, like, the 3x world in baseball. Hockey kind of was in more of the baseball class there, and you saw soccer with some outsized multipliers. So, anyways, you had a lot of people grading cards, and that trend for sure is something that we've seen pretty much since I started collecting the data. Since Jeremy started publishing this data, soccer's been, you know, a solid number four there, and hockey's been pretty distant as either five or six. Uh, you are seeing some increased momentum for hockey, which is cool to see. I'm not you know, from Cleveland, and we don't have a hockey team, so I haven't followed hockey hockey as closely closely as I had other sports over the years. But I'm learning a lot about it. It's very interesting. And there's a lot, there's, there's an increasing amount of momentum going towards hockey now because, again, people are trying to find pockets of the hobby to invest in that aren't getting crushed with oversupply. And hockey is one where people are starting to focus their attention. Another quick trend that we've seen that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next few months is that, you know, Pokemon in particular and TCG, which is sort of the category that's wrapped up in Gemrate and by PSA, that has had a crazy rise over the last, you know, five or six months. And it's just now, I would say just in January, starting to show some signs of falling number two to basketball again. But I mean, that was that, that was at the top of our charts the last three months. And it's staggering numbers of Pokemon cards that are being put into the marketplace. We've seen that. The um, other trends that we've been looking at, they're really less about the Gemrate data as a whole. And just we have some stuff that we're seeing from like the market standpoint that is interesting to see. I have, I have all these different theories about sort of like pricing and sort of how things need to correct, but it's all related to supply, but it's not necessarily directly related to what we're presenting on Gemrate. I hear you. I mean, it's hard not to look at the data and then try to make some correlation with the prices, right? I mean, in, in terms of individual sales or even industry-wide numbers, right? And then, you know, when you talk about wax, are, are you speaking specifically about the cost of like, say, a wax box or, or packs or, or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, a good example of what you said that's playing out on the market today is, you know, Rui. So you had the benefit of the 2019 class. You know, production was pretty much 
as expected. I think there might have been some delays there. But you had COVID step in, which basically allowed all these cards to come out of the marketplace that you you had almost a full assortment of 2019 product in the market by the time that the bubble went into play. And so not everybody obviously played in the bubble and it didn't impact all cards, but it still had people interested in basketball and speculating. And also it had a lot of people that didn't participate. And pricing is all around expectations about future performance. And so because product existed and there was still a lot of unknowns, so you could project out all these different scenarios for players, you saw like players like Rui get a ton of support because there was a lot of unknowns. There was still like a ton of performance baked into their expectations. Whereas when you look at like the 2020 class, there's been no product available. We know we're still launching in January of 2022, some of the just getting into the higher end of the 2020 product, but you've had a season and a half of these players' performance already baked into their prices. So you will never see, you know, the players of Rui caliber or, you know, further down the line in the, in the, in the draft, who are going to have all these cards graded because there's already a known player there. Like there's already a known ceiling because these players have had a year and a half in the market, whereas, you know, people were still speculating on Rui for a long time. So that is super interesting. You'll see that in our data. And like, so how that plays out is you've had like 400,000, or I think the number is like 250,000 base prisms that were created by PSA from 2019. You know, you're going to see fractions of that for 2020 because there's just so many, one, the base phenomenon is gone. And two, people just aren't going to grade people that, you know, they were speculating on. The future performance is, is pretty well baked in and it's not a high ceiling for a lot of these guys. Yeah. And let's take a step back. If you have that backlog of 6.7 million, right? Are you suspecting that those cards are going to be what's already kind of, you know, populating the top 100, top of 500 in terms of those base prisms uh, or, or even more, even more Pokemon flooding the market once those cards get out of, get, get done grading? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot of the cards that were on the margin. So it's like, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't support the premium of any sort of accelerated service. So, you know, you see the rise of 2019 Mosaic, you see a ton of Mosaic, for example, which is like a perfect set to sort of represent that era because it's like, you know, the, it was not a high price set. It was, but it was, you know, first time it was in market as its own individual set. So people cared about it and they wanted to grade it, but they couldn't rationalize paying high prices. And so, you know, the backlog is flooded with Mosaic, for example. And that's, you know, not as many Zions as you'd think. There's certainly a ton of Zions in there, but it's not like, you know, that was the one player that they could take out of the pack, take out of the pile and say, no, nah, we'll, we'll expedite the, the service here, right? And so you have more of the Tyler Heroes, the Rubies, these guys that were sort of, you know, Michael Porter Jr. is the people that you wouldn't necessarily pay a premium for, but you thought there was potential. That's what the backlog is. It's mosaics and it's the sort of on the margin players and or, you know, the parallels. The parallels, the other side of this equation that we haven't talked about. But I mean, you know, this is the biggest head fake of the whole era is that there's scarcity around and rarity around parallels when the reality is, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of versions of these cards out there. And again, the demand is pretty limited when, you know, people aren't going to want the fringe parallels. And so, you know, people go to, will sell under the idea that these things are rare and, and there's demand for them. But the reality is there's not that many buyers for a lot of these things. And so parallels are a big part of what's in that backlog too. And there's just not going to be the demand for them because people aren't going to be buying the, the sixth and seventh best parallel, you know, for the fourth and fifth best players out of a class. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot goes into that, right? Like I think the average hobbyist is a lot more because of the numbers, because of the data that's out there, they're a lot more well-educated, right? In terms of what they want to buy and, and what they should sell and things like that. Kind of moving on on some other things. The one rising thing that I've kind of wondering a lot about is F1. Is that something that you that you help track or is that something that uh, you still haven't seen too much of? We track it. It doesn't show up in sort of our weekly 
report that we put together as sort of this, you know, emerging category, but, you know, just because the supply is not crazy yet. And it was launched into what was a very expensive market to grade cards. And so I think the enthusiasm obviously is there. And I think people have certainly been willing to pay a premium to grade a good number of the cards, but it's still, I, I, I'm sure there's tons of people sitting on a bunch of stuff they're excited to grade. And there's obviously a lot of momentum there, but it hasn't really played out in our numbers just in the sense of it's still very small relative to some of these more established categories that exist. So but the thing I love is you can go into Gemery. One of the things that I didn't talk about is you can kind of, we have our sort of like way back machine that Amazon has, which is you can go look at this data at any point in time. It's, we call it data replay, but you can go look at F1 trends as it was, you know, of April of 2001 and you can compare it to today and you can kind of, you can just very quickly see what that trend looks like for all these things. And you'll see impressive momentum there, but it's usually at the very high end of the market, you know, the cards that people were willing to pay for. So you can see the momentum, but it's still very small relative to the more established categories. You're right. Now that I think about it, like as F1's popularity has been rising, you know, for a large part of that, number one, PSA was shut down. And then number two, like you would have to have those high end cards, you know, if you wanted to be paying hundreds of dollars to get your guard expedited. And most of these cards, you know, these base cards are, aren't worth that. It's good because, you know, I guess maybe the F1 cards have maintain some sort of value there because you know they're not overgraded yeah they, they will benefit from the fact that there won't be this oversupply where people are trying to you know capitalize on some inefficiency i mean granted the cards will still exist obviously but just you won't people will be more thoughtful about what qualifies as a card that's worth you know throwing into the mix of grading so it's been awesome talking to you ryan i'm going to leave with one question here for you you started this business more than a year ago what are your impressions of it now and are you happy that you made that decision so my impression is that, you know, I didn't, I don't think I understood just like how much pent up demand there was for people to get some visibility into supply. And I've been very pleasantly surprised by just like the amount of outreach I've, I've received as it relates to, you know, just people being grateful that this exists. And, you know, what's interesting about it is it's not necessarily things, data that you're going to make a decision on tomorrow, but it provides this broader context that I think just was causing a lot of, you know, uncertainty in the market. And I think people are very grateful for that. So it's a little bit of just like a calming data set for the market to give people grounded and have them give them a better sense of what's happening. And so I've been very happy to see how well that's been received. And I most certainly have been happy that this is sort of where, I mean, it's not work for me. I mean, I spend my full time, you know, this is my full time job, but I love it. I mean, I'm building a product for myself and then I know will extend to people like myself that are, again, are, are data nerds. And then I'm also thinking about it more broadly to people who are maybe, you know, again, wanting to see it within their own collection experience thinking about how to then present it to them. But I'm just building stuff that I want or that I think people with similar ideas would want to see in the market. And so it's a hobby for me that I learn a lot about uh, and you know, hopefully becomes a source of income for me. There's always that in the background that I want to make sure that this is you know financially sustainable and lucrative for me and the team in the process. But this is um, very fulfilling, I would say. I just, I've enjoyed it and it's been cool to sort of see Jamrate established in some of the when it gets mentioned in sort of a, a Josh Luber report around, you know, the where the market's going, and it's one of, you know, twelve tools mentioned there. It's very exciting for us to see because you know we haven't been around that long, and to know that there's people again with a lot of influence in the hobby that pay attention to what we're doing means a lot. That's all we wanted was sort of people to appreciate what we're doing here and to hopefully make informed decisions off off of this. And then we're excited for the, the sort of next phase of this, which is again we think this is going to be one of the best storytelling tools out there for content providers or for people who want to support their investment theses or people who just want to find cool or desirable cards to add to their collection. So 
still very early in the tooling side of things, but we've been really happy with sort of how content was received last year, and we're excited to really dig into sort of the tooling side of things and give people more opportunities to, you know, just dig into the data themselves and have a lot more control over how they want to sort of slice and dice it. Yeah, absolutely. So your website is gemrate.com. Yep. And then could you tell us what, you know, your other handles like on Instagram and Twitter, where they can find you? Yeah, they're both just Gemrate, uh, Twitter and Instagram too. So easy to find. And I would say we have a bigger following on Instagram because that's where we sort of got our initial shout out from Cardporn and people were paying attention to us. But we've actually got a lot more momentum on Twitter recent days just because we've been starting to publish data about SGC trends and BGS trends. And I think people, again, people like to just have data to support their hypotheses. And so it's been interesting to see some of the momentum pick up on Twitter. But yeah, we're active on those platforms. We'd like to continue to participate. You can also sign up for our email newsletter. We don't email that often. We send them up to report and maybe an occasional another report or two during the month. Uh, but those are the best ways to stay in the loop for what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your time. And, and you know, uh, I know that a lot of times we talk about, and I'll, I'll mention this again, people that are innovating the space and the amount of number one energy, you know, uh, you know, money, uh, of course, but then also like, you know, thoughtfulness, right? Thoughtfulness and thoughtfulness can come in different ways, you know, with intelligence, hard work that has poured into the, the hobby over the last two years has been incredible. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that I think that what you've created is one of those, you know, innovations that helps people kind of see things from a different light. Just want to kind of end on that note and best of luck to you, Ryan. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you having me on and giving us a chance to tell more of our story. You know, we're still very early. And so these, these opportunities mean the world to us. So thank you for having us on. We really appreciate it. When I'm here sitting, reflecting on today's guest, Ryan, I think the thing that stick out to me, number one, was the risk that he took to start his own company and to just go for it. We always talk about what it takes to start a business and what it takes to kind of do something different. And so I just want to shout out to Ryan for, for having the courage to do that. The second thing that stuck out to me was the backlog at PSA. They have 6.7 million cards still waiting to be graded. And Ryan just kind of came out and said, hey, that's about a card a minute, which is just astounding to me. And the third thing was the transparency with which he wants to run his company. Very forward thinking and has a very clear mission of what he wants to do with his data how he wants to maintain control of it and what he's looking really to get out of it. So those things really stuck out to me. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode or other episodes on the podcast, please do us a favor and leave a review and follow us. It helps. Until next time, take care.